You are listening live to the latest edition of the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP, online with our app. Hi everybody, Tanner Hoops with you, helping you start a new week on the right foot. Well, I tell you what, it's an unusual show today. For Monday, we reflect on some of the interviews that we've done here over the past year. We've had some fun guests here on the Sports Pen, and I want to showcase a few of those for you. We've been joined by ESPN Radio's Jason Fitz. You can hear him every morning on Golick and Wingo. We've been joined by Mitch Altus, play-by-play voice of the Kansas City Chiefs. Nate Bjorkren, assistant coach of the NBA champion Toronto Raptors. They've all been a part of this show, and you're going to hear from all of them and more over the course of the next hour as we go back and take a look at some of our best interviews of 2019. You ready? Let's jump right into it. We have Jason Fitz of ESPN Radio Spain and Fitz on headset with us. Fitz, Bama looks like maybe the best version of themselves Nick Saban has ever had. What reasons do the other three have to think they could knock off the Crimson Tide and be the national champions this season? Well, I, I think it's going to come down to two things. One, to his health, because as much as we – here's the, the easy thing to say. Jalen Hurts can step in and win a national championship because, frankly, he's been there before. But remember, Jalen Hurts didn't win the job for a reason. Tua is a better quarterback. So if Tua Tungvaloa's ankle is not healthy and hit the, he can't go, that will play a factor into it. The other part of it is that this Alabama defense hasn't truly been tested. And, and we're used to brand bias of – hey, Alabama's defense is spectacular year in and year out. That's true. But this defense particularly I don't think is as talented or as experienced as some of the defenses they've had in the, in the past. So, you know, as, as much as it's easy to look at Oklahoma, for example, and say, hey, you know, how can Oklahoma beat them? Well, Oklahoma can put points on anybody. So, you know, Oklahoma does have a, a bit of a shot. And, frankly, I think if you're asking me right now, Clemson's defense is better than Alabama's defense. So, you know, I don't see any reason why Clemson can't make their case that they deserve to be the national champion as well. So uh, I don't think this particular road for, for Alabama is going to be as easy as some people do. How about Notre Dame? What did they have to rely on to give them any hope going into the playoff? Notre Dame's real strategy comes around balance. Look, Ian Book has come in and been a good quarterback for him, but he's not a great quarterback. They don't ask the same things of their quarterbacks that some of these other teams do. They ask a lot from Dexter Williams, their star running back, who's had a spectacular year. The unfortunate thing is it's strength on strength. Dexter Williams is going to go up against that Clemson defensive line that's the best in the country that's only given up about 2.4 yards a carry. I don't think they're going to find any wiggle room. And then it becomes how do you create balance when you can't? And, and uh, I think the most interesting thing about Clemson-Notre Dame is going to be the coaching and their ability to are they going to sort of stick to this is who we are and we're going to impose our will because I don't think that will work. Or are they going to come in and suddenly show varied uh, offensive looks? I don't know that that's necessarily who they are either. So just by sheer matchup problems, I don't know that Notre Dame can compete with Clemson. Jason, tell me about the committee's decision to put the four teams in that they did. I know that there's an argument going around saying the four most deserving teams compared to the four best teams. And a lot of people feel that Georgia was snubbed. They feel that Ohio State was snubbed. They feel that UCF was snubbed. Tell me about how you see the committee's decision to put the four teams in that they did. Did they get it right? If I was on the committee, I would have put Georgia in at number four. That being said, I think the committee's real job is to get the four best of the four most deserving. And that's a really weird line to figure out year in and year out. I'll go back a few years ago to USC when Sam Darnold was their quarterback and Sam was benched for the first three games. They lose those. They change quarterbacks by the end of the year. They're a 9-3 football team that was playing. They were definitely one of the four best in the country, but they were never going to stand the shot at the playoff or, or that sort of a system because 
they lost three games. We all have whatever that line is in our minds. I think once Georgia took a second loss, and, and look, uh, do we really want to be in a world where being competitive but losing to Alabama means more than beating Texas? I, I don't know. So uh, I think that ultimately they, start, they tried to pick, once they figured out what most deserving was, they picked the four best of that category. And the uh, between the loss to LSU that Georgia didn't look good in and then the second loss, it took them out of the most deserving category. Do you think had Georgia's second loss come earlier in this season and they beat Alabama in the SEC championship, so they did have two losses but a conference title of their name, could that have put them in at number four? Yeah, I think so. Not only the conference title, but even more important than the conference title, what a conference championship game gives you, I think the most important thing it gives you is an opportunity for a resume win, a big win that everybody can hang their hat on and say, wow, this was a statement. And, you know, it's one of the things that the Big 12 has done smarter than all of the rest of the conferences. By by putting their number one versus number two, they make sure that whoever plays in that championship game has a shot at a big win. I would argue that the Big 10 would look completely different after a championship game if Ohio State had had the opportunity for a big win instead of a win over Northwestern, which was never going to be felt with the same power as a win over, let's say, a Michigan. Talking with Jason Fitz of ESPN Radio Spain and Fitz. Jason, how about the Heisman Trophy? That was awarded to Kyler Murray on Saturday night, won it over to a Tugavailoa and Dwayne Haskins. It surprised me a little bit. I won't say it was undeservedly given to Kyler Murray, just surprisingly maybe. Was that the same for you? It was surprising to me. I think what happened on Saturday, uh, as I continued to host um, a Twitter college football show there, uh, I had the opportunity to talk to Tim Tebow for that on Saturday. And I talked to Tebow uh, before the award came out, and I asked him what the most important thing he looks for in a Heisman Trophy winner is. And he said signature moments, where you look at it and you say, hey, the biggest moment, the biggest game, he was the biggest player. And when Tim said that, it really hit me that we haven't seen that from Tua this year because of the situation. I mean, because, frankly, he's been so good and Bama's been so good, we haven't seen that biggest moment, biggest biggest win and you know and in that moment i think it sort of hit me hey this isn't going to go the way i think it's going to go uh, kyler murray's going to win and, and i think that was a big factor for for people in general when you only take the first three quarters of their their stats you just throw the fourth quarter out because Tua didn't play in the fourth quarter in so many games kyler murray and Tua are almost exactly identical identical statistically so i think at the end of the day it became about the recency and the big moments and the highlights that everybody saw of kyler murray over the last three four weeks versus a hobbled injured Tua, and that was enough to make a difference. Well, Jason, let's finish off by talking about some of the local colleges around here and their bowl matchups. You've got Michigan taking on Florida in the Peach Bowl. It's an opponent they've seen a lot, three out of the last four years in Harbaugh's tenure. That's three times more than five Big Ten opponents drummed by Ohio State. They still bring in the number one defense in the country, but how confident should they be going into Florida? Incredibly confident, and look, I think Florida is not as good as their record, and uh, Florida was a little overhyped for me this year, and really inconsistent. So, you know, for me, this is a big statement. I mean, it's easy to look at bowl games and say there's not much to play for. This is important for both of these teams, because Florida had opportunity when they look back, they'll look back in this year and wonder how they let the East get away from them. Florida wants a statement win. Dan Mullins wants a statement win. But Michigan particularly needs to get the taste out of their mouth of what happened the last time they were on the field. They need to sort of remind everybody also that the uh, the Big Ten is theirs to have now. So I think there's a statement to be taken from it for Michigan. And, uh, and I think Michigan will win handily in the game, mostly because their defense is just going to be able to shut down Florida, and they'll be able to do enough offensively. 
You've had an up-and-down, inconsistent Michigan State squad that's going over to the Bay Area to take on an upcoming Oregon squad in the Red Box Bowl. How do you see that one shaking out? Uh, I, I said it earlier, I, you know, at the beginning of the year, I was asked what team outside the top ten could make a push, and I had high expectations for Michigan State. I thought they were going to be a really good football team this year. They were not, and Brian Lewerke particularly just was a shell of himself, did not take that step forward. Michigan State's got serious offensive concerns. I don't like the way the play calling has looked. I don't like their continuity on offense. I've watched every one of those games this year with a careful eye, and I don't think Michigan State is playing up to their talent. So I think they're going to get thumped by an Oregon team that is and is looking for it, and I think Michigan State's going to have to look in the mirror this offseason and ask what has to change to make them better. Well, largely a disappointing season for the Wisconsin Badgers as well. They're getting a rematch with Miami. This time, instead of the Orange Bowl, it's coming in the Pinstripe Bowl between a pair of teams that had high expectations for this season, just didn't pan out that way. What do we expect from those teams at Yankee Stadium? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's a pair of teams that that should have been better. I mean, Wisconsin's going to look back and, and realize that they wasted a year. Jonathan Taylor, we all knew that he was going to be the offense. Why couldn't they get it done? Why couldn't they make it happen? Uh, again, I mentioned quarterback play for Michigan State. It was also a, a hindrance for Wisconsin. And I think Wisconsin and Michigan State are both looking at themselves, wondering what they need to do to get better. Uh, Miami, not a very good football team, though. So uh, if I'm looking at just wanting to win Wisconsin offensive line is very good, and they can still run the football. I think they're going to be able to do that against Miami, uh, and I think they actually will come away with this with a pretty convincing win, which is going to be unfortunate for Wisconsin fans because it's going to get hopes up next year that next year is going to be better, and I don't know how to bank on Wisconsin moving forward. Jason, last thing before I let you go, you said that Michigan needs a statement win over Florida to prove that the Big Ten is theirs. How much of that does Urban Meyer's retirement factor into it, and will he coach again? Yeah, I think so, and you know, I think we've seen it before when the going gets tough on the personal stuff, he just walks away from the program, and uh, I'm not trying to be harsh on Urban, but that's what he did at Florida, and then suddenly his health got better. Stress is part of what makes his health bad, and so you know, this has been a stressful year for him, so taking nothing away from the health issues uh, that, that I'm not a doctor, so I can't speak to, but I can definitely speak to the fact that in his past, he's led programs that got themselves in trouble, and then he's walked away, and then he's come back. So there's no reason for me to think it won't happen again. It's in coach's blood to coach. Uh, the minute he gets his health back on him and he feels right, somebody's going to let him coach, because this isn't just about Urban Meyer the man, it's about Urban Meyer the winner, and that's what college football teams seem to fall in love with. Tanner Hoops on the Sports Pen, joined by ESPN Radio's Jason Fitz of Spain and Fitz. That'll be coming on later tonight from 6 to 9. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on here. All the best to you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app. Welcome back to ESPN UP. Tanner Hoops with you. We're joined by a special guest on headset, Kansas City Chiefs radio play-by-play voice, Mitch Altis. Getting ready to go into the postseason, the Chiefs will do so as the top seed in the AFC. Well, Mitch, first and foremost, is this the season Kansas City was expecting this year to be this successful and high-powered on offense? No, although we saw Patrick Mahomes last year at training camp and we knew how important his apprentice year would be under Alex Smith last year. And then the first glimpse that Mahomes could be special and that 18 could be better than people realized was the final game of 17 in the regular season when Mahomes basically with the JV squad beat Denver in Denver. 
And then we thought, well, it could be okay, although the external expectations were lower because of basically having a brand-new quarterback. But, Tanner, nobody saw 50 touchdowns and 5,000 passing yards and arguably uh, the second-best regular season in NFL history from a quarterback that's 23 years old. And then to have Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey go to other levels as well. Uh, this team is dangerous. Um, and to get the one seed and to have this bye week has been uh, very important for the Chiefs. Rest a few starters in the final week of the regular season. Come out and thump an Oakland team that had just thumped Denver 35-3. to Does it speak to the depth that Kansas City has this year? Do you take anything away from a Week 17 win over a team that really underperformed this season? Yeah, and you've got to dig a little deeper than if someone just perused the stats for the 16-week regular season, Tanner. They would have to look at the significant defensive changes the team made actually prior to the Seattle game. If the Chiefs make a run here in the playoffs and get to the promised land, it will actually be looking back at the Thursday night loss to the Chargers as a possible favor done uh, by the L.A. Carson Chargers or whatever they are, just because the team made some, the Chiefs team, made some dramatic moves after that, personnel decisions, schematic decisions. And even though Seattle was able to overcome it and won 38-31 in Seattle, it was because of a terrific performance by Russell Wilson and also by Tyler Lockett and Doug Baldwin. Now, the defensive changes then did manifest at Arrowhead with that 35-3 win. Four takeaways from Oakland on the first four Raider possessions, and then after that field goal of 50 yards, there were four consecutive punts. It's the best the defense played all year, and they got an explosive defensive play. And keep in mind, this is a Chiefs team that is number one in the NFL in sacks. So it could be a better defensive team than the statistics show. That's what you take away from the Oakland victory. Well, you talked about the defense and how they really came to life in Week 17, and I I would say that's probably where the fans have a little hesitation with Kansas City is the defense, and they rely on the offense to put up points. Why should Chiefs fans feel confident in this defense going into the postseason? Well, I would say to look back in history and only as far as the 2006 Colts, if you're looking for a parallel team, it might be the world champion Colts of Tony Dungy in 2006 and Peyton Manning. That defense of the Colts that year was not very good, at least statistically. They got Bob Sanders back right before the playoffs. They actually beat the Chiefs in a wild-card weekend game, but then go on to win uh, the whole shooting match. Uh, yes, there's concerns. There's the most 20-plus plays given up, uh, uh, runs of four yards or more in first down. The Chiefs were at the bottom of the league in that regard. But you also have to, there was a stat there today I saw that the Chiefs have had to defend 100 more passes than any team in the league. So it's also a byproduct of the Chiefs having a lead. The other thing to consider, and even to talk about the defense, flip it back to the offense, the Chiefs are the only team in NFL history, the only team in NFL history to have no fewer than 26 points scored in any single regular season game. That means as a defensive or an opponent coming to play the Chiefs, whomever the three teams might be in the first round, you've got a target scoring 30. If the Chiefs can get one possession stops, because teams are also, Tanner, looking at low possession games. They're trying to say we've got to play eight possessions against the Chiefs. Ravens tried it, did it. Uh, Chargers tried it, did it. Seahawks even were trying to do it. If you're going to do that and you have one stop or one explosive defensive play by the Chiefs, it's almost too much to overcome. Now, that was the recipe 
of the 06 Colts. I know we're going back 13 seasons, 12 years, but that's a pretty good parallel to look at to tell you why the Chiefs have a little more danger on their defense than it may appear. Tell me about Arrowhead on game day, and I know how good of an environment that is. It was where I went to my first NFL game. It's an electric atmosphere. It's a place unlike any other in the NFL. Why is it so important to get that one seed and make the road run through Arrowhead? Because, honestly, it is a crowd that comes to the game wanting to influence the game. I'll give Seattle credit. Uh, the 12, and the Chiefs were just there, They were the crowd from Seattle was fantastic in the game. They did not relent. They don't come to be entertained. They don't come to say, hey, I've spent a lot of money here. What are you going to do for me? The Seattle crowd and the Kansas City crowd are both coming to the game to influence the game. Get a false start. Um, try to create <laughs> angst among the opponent. Make the opponent use silent counts. And just basically throw the opponent off. That's why defensively it's important for the Chiefs to play well like they did against Oakland because that keeps the crowd revved off. You, you know the offense is going to fuel the fire. But if the defense can stoke it as well with some big plays, then the, the crowd's almost insurmountable. It, it just, it's just relentless all day long, uh, and it is a unique place. Doug with Mitch Altis, the radio play-by-play voice of the Kansas City Chiefs. Mitch, let's talk about Patrick Mahomes. You said earlier 50 touchdown passes, 50-plus now, and 5,000 passing yards in a single season. He did that here with Kansas City. He did that in college at Texas Tech. He's the only player in NFL history to do it at both levels. What's he like off the field? Does he carry the same demeanor when he's in the locker room as he does when he's downtown buying a sandwich or something? Well, it's harder for him now to go downtown to buy a sandwich because yeah. he's all of a sudden, you know, just <laughs> they're all over him. Um, and it's, it's difficult for him to have a private moment. I would tell you that in the locker room, he has been spectacular. He is well beyond his 23 years as far as maturity and how to handle teammates. I'll say one thing. They, they also saw the team, the locker room, saw how he handled last year. If Patrick Mahomes continues this at a high level, Chiefs have success in the playoffs, and it morphs into 2019, and there'll be a lot of national and, quite honestly, international discussion because he is becoming very popular in Mahomes around the world. Uh, China is a big deal in China. Um, but the point here is people will look back as his apprentice year of 2017 with Alex Smith. He handled it beautifully. Alex, I mean, how many people, I mean, any of us, whether we live in Michigan or Kansas or Missouri, or Iowa or Nebraska or South Dakota are going to say, hey, I'm going to train somebody to take my job. Alex was secure enough as a person and as a professional to do that. But Mahomes was humble enough as saying, I will take my time and I will learn what I do not know. And it was so beneficial uh, for Patrick to do it. But the locker room saw how he handled that. Now, let's fast forward to the home first home game this year against San Francisco. When the team was introduced, Mahomes was the last guy to be introduced. And I watched the reaction of his 52 teammates, and it was as if it was their birthday party. They were so excited for Mahomes to get because he waited for his shot. And now he was, he was right in the middle of it, and they knew how good he could be. Uh, but the locker room, he has been a motivator, he's been an encourager, and the veterans love this guy. People, I mean, you have Lions fans that listen to you, or fans of the NFC North. They have to understand that it's very difficult for veterans to buy in to a 23-year-old kid, essentially, to be a leader. So you ask a terrific question, but I would tell you that it's almost like a 10-year veteran 
in a 23-year-old body. Mitch, uh, you talked about Alex Smith and the mentorship that he gave Patrick last season. Those two had to become close, had a bond of their own outside of football. What was Patrick like reacting to the news that Alex Smith had suffered a severe injury, possibly career-threatening? We're, we're, all, uh, we're all just crushed by it, and Patrick was as well. Uh, I think Patrick sees Alex as kind of a big brother, and I think that will always be the case uh, as the months and years go on. Alex Smith is, first of all, he's a winner. He won 50 games as a Kansas City Chiefs quarterback. He fit this offense very well, but as a person, unreal. If people, just have people of your listeners basically Google or do a search of his foundation, it's one of the best I've ever seen. But for him to have that injury and then to have the complications after the injury has been really kind of devastating to all of us. But Alex Smith will always have a fun uh, spot in the heart of Patrick Mahomes and all of us in the Chiefs' kingdom. He will have a place there into perpetuity because of what he did and how he handled uh, the situation, especially in 2017. Mitch, how about you? And you got to call one of the greatest games in the National Football League in recent memory, the Monday night game against the Rams, 54-51. It was back mm-hmm. and forth. It was wild. It was one of the most entertaining games I've ever gotten to watch. What was that like from the voice's perspective? Well, it's you, you never you prepare uh, for any game, but you can't rehearse, and you have to react. And you've done a ton of play-by-play yourself, and so you know there's. It, it's almost like to play or officiate or coach the game. I can prepare, but I have no idea what's going to happen once the, the game starts. And that game from the get-go was like lighting a fuse and holding onto a Roman candle. I mean, it was just you know, crazy and hot and electric. Uh, from the very first snap until the end. And so, yes, I mean, there was a surge of adrenaline going through me. I've had some other big games in the past, but not 105 points on that big of, of national stage in that environment. And so you want to be clear and concise and entertaining with every call, but you also realize that you're not doing the game for the moment. You're also doing the game into posterity. And that's a little bit of these post-games uh, play-by-plays as well. Even starting next week with the divisional round, you're actually doing two play-by-plays. You're doing the game and the moment for that year. But in the back of your mind, you're also realizing this is going to be resourced and referenced 20 years from now, possibly 30 years from now, in whatever ways we're looking back at old audio. And so uh, you, you have to prepare your kind of mind, body, and soul to realize there's additional dimensions to big games and to big moments and to big playoff games. Do you have a way that you like to do that, or is that top secret? Uh, we'll leave that top secret, and some <laughs> of it changes. But, uh, you know, if I told you, you'd have to take the pill that's right there to your right. Yep. Uh, and you don't want to do that. You've got too much of a career ahead of you, so we'll just leave it at that. Mitch Alt is the radio play-by-play voice of the Kansas City Chiefs. Any moment from this season that has stuck out to you that's been your favorite or just the most special to you? Well, honestly, this gets myopic and personal, but I mean, I'll remember this season for gosh, so many things. There are two, and one is personal. The other is uh, will resonate as far as, as Michigan. Uh, and that is the first one would be it was my 400th game this year in Denver, and there were all kinds of tributes done from Clark Hunt, Patrick Mahomes, and Andy Reid 
and down to even my family that they had interspersed during the game that I had no idea about, and then presenting me the game ball. Uh, so that one's a little personal in my optic, but I will remember this season for that. I'm, I'm going to give you two others that I will always remember this season for. Uh, the next one would be in on November the 11th. Okay, Kansas City is the home of the National World War I Museum. It is spectacular. And even if your listeners, if they're traveling, uh, make Kansas City an interesting, just check out Kansas City as a vacation spot. But when you do come there or here, you want to go to the National World War I Museum. Now, the reason I say that was this year, on November the 11th, 2018, it was the exact 100-year anniversary of the end of World War I. It was the Armistice Day, November the 11th of 1918. It is why that we commemorate that on the 11th hour, the 11th month of the 11th day, because that's when World War I ended. And 21 bells rang throughout Europe to signify the end of a horrible war, that was called the World War to End All Wars, and we know that just a few years later, World War II would occur. But that being said, we're playing the Arizona Cardinals, and I had written a tribute. There was a special patch that our guys wore that day during warm-ups that uh, commemorated the 100th anniversary of the end of the uh, World War One and the original armistice. We played at exactly 11 o'clock while the Arizona Cardinals and Chiefs were warming up we started to play that tribute and told 21 bells. I will tell you, Tanner, the entire stadium stopped. The Cardinals quit warming up. They were not told to do so. They just did it out of reverence. The Chiefs did it, and everybody just stopped. For the about 90 seconds it took to ring 21 bells to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the armistice in the end of World War I. It's a moment I will never forget. It still gives me chills to talk about it. A third one was seen by probably many of your listeners um, on NFL Network. And NFL Network ran a special on Cameron Black, who is a blind fan. A year ago, about this time, there was a video link that was sent to me about Cameron and how he listens to every game and what it means to him. NFL Network came in, basically embedded with Cameron and myself for a week. They ran it on Christmas night. It's out. You can see it in a viral uh, form You can see it on all kinds of platforms. But that, this season will be remembered as the year that the NFL Network kind of illuminated the relationship that I developed with Cameron, and not only Cameron, but with Alpha Point, and reaching out to those who cannot see or are visually impaired. Because what you and I do many times has to create the theater of the mind. If we're calling hockey or softball or, or football, because we often, you know, we're talking to an audience that many times can't see the game. Well, now there's a group of people that can never see the game or see anything else. And that's why that feature on NFL Network uh, was uh, one that was manifested, and I won't forget. So there's been a lot loaded in this 2018 season, both professionally and personally. Mitch, the first time I met you, I had the pleasure of hearing you speak in Lamar's, Iowa, and you spoke at length about Eric Berry. And I mean, he's just a class act individual. I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, but you know him very well. Tell my listeners, if you could, what Eric Berry means to this team, to the city, the organization, what have you. Well, you've got a lot of people listening to you now that are cancer survivors. And there have been very few NFL players who have been diagnosed with cancer during the apex of their career or any time during their career and fought back to defeat cancer and to get back on the field. He is a... And he's the Wikipedia definition of inspiration. 
both to the team, but also to fans and anybody that really studies what Eric Berry has done and what he has overcome. I mean, he is a study in resilience and uh, just, you know, a phenomenal human being to do what he's done. It has been heartbreaking to see this injury just kind of keep him saddled, and the injury is one that he suffered against the New England Patriots in the opening game of 2017 when the Chiefs blew out New England in New England. Hard to do. And a big part of that was Eric Berry guarding Rob Gronkowski. But ever since then, really, uh, Berry's only played, let's see, he played 69 snaps against the uh, Seahawks, and he played 30 against uh, the Chargers. But that's it in two years. So hopefully he can get back on the field. But whether he never gets back on the field or not, then people just have to understand what a remarkable human being is and what a source of inspiration and courage he is. All right, Mitch. Patrick Mahomes has had an MVP caliber season. He would get my vote. Tell me why he deserves to be this year's MVP. I really don't know why there's much of a discussion here. Now let's preface it, but I love Drew Brees. Love him. One of my favorite non-chiefs. And you got a lot of Big Ten fans in your listening area that remember him at Purdue in the late 90s with Joe Tiller's teams. Uh, and he's had incredible. So you have to look at it in absolute value, mathematical terms, to put brackets around 2018. Now, Drew Brees has had an outstanding year. As a team, all you can do at this point is be the one seed and win your division. Both Drew Brees and Mahomes have done that. They're the two top quarterbacks seed-wise in the AFC and NFC. But when you look at Breeze's numbers, they really kind of pale in comparison this year to what Mahomes has done. Mahomes has 30, get this, 30 road touchdown passes. 30. That's as many as Drew Breeze has had all season. And I would tell you that Drew Breeze has had a better run game and defense overall uh, than Mahomes. Now, it, it's not that you got Saints fans listening, and don't get me wrong, Drew Breeze is a Hall of Famer. But for 2018 and your MVP, I could sit down and make a case in front of the Supreme Court and make a very strong case to say that's really not even close. You brought up that you like your interactions with Drew Brees. I mean, he's a class act guy. Do, oh, you, big have, time. do you have any player around the NFL, a non-chief that you see from time to time that you always enjoy interacting with them? Larry Fitzgerald's unbelievable. Mm. Unbelievable. I mean, there should be a Hall of Fame by for himself, honestly, somewhere maybe around Canton or we could put it up in the Upper Peninsula someplace mm-hmm. or on the campus at Pitt. It's, it's a phenomenal person. There have been a lot of folks that have attacked the National Football League for a variety of reasons. And I would just put Larry Fitzgerald out there as Exhibit A of going, okay, this, is, this should be the guy you talk to first and foremost about the National Football League and its impact on and off the field. He is phenomenal. He is, he is on my non-chief all-star list, and Breeze is on there as well. Mitch Altis, radio play-by-play voice of the Kansas City Chiefs. Appreciate you doing this, Mitch. As always, good luck in the playoffs. I'll be rooting for you. Yeah, and you got a lot of Lion fans up there. Favorite Lion would be Barry Sanders. Mm. He's from Wichita, uh, Wichita North High School, right? So he's close uh, to where I grew up. And uh, so he's on that list as well, the, my, one of my favorite all-time non-Chiefs. Got to have him on. They got to give the Lions fans a little bit of reason to smile. Really. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Thanks again, Mitch. I appreciate it. All right, brother. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Last week, the Toronto Raptors won their first ever NBA championship. We're pleased to be joined by assistant coach Nate Bjorkren. Coach, i got to tell you, I saw that championship parade on Monday. It looked unbelievable. A whole country came behind your team and supported you as you made your run to the championship. Can you put into words how it feels? You know, when I, when I look at it again, you know, I've seen the, I've seen the replay on TV, and, and, and it was really something, you know, all the aerial views. You know, but I was fortunate enough to, to ride with my family. We had, a, we had a truck, you know, towards the front of that parade, and, and, man, the people that came out to celebrate that victory and all the side streets were full, and, and obviously the main route was full, people in the buildings and on bridges, uh, it was something I know that I'll never forget, and, and my kids sure were soaking it all up, so they had a good time. Nate, I think we were all amazed at the way Kawhi Leonard elevated his game this season, especially after injury. I really admire his court demeanor. He doesn't showboat. He doesn't let his emotions get the best of him or even show. He just quietly goes about his business at a high level. Did he set the tone for the younger guys with his work ethic? Yeah, and he's like that every day. I mean, he is smooth. Uh, he is composed. He is very determined. I mean, he, uh, and one thing about him, with him and our team, uh, we just kept getting better, you know, as the year went on and as the playoffs went on. You know, we were in those playoffs since April 12th and, and two months of playoff basketball. And he, he did uh, uh, lead the way with, with determination and, and composure. And, and when things were bad or when things weren't going so well in a game, he would. He would huddle those guys up in timeouts and, uh, starts of quarters and, and say we're okay and, and let's make our run and he is a he is a leader. Coach was one of those moments when you were getting set to start overtime in Game Three of the Milwaukee series. Did it feel like a must win to you? And if so, what was the message to your team? Absolutely, absolutely a must win. You know, we found ourselves in that situation a few times. You know, we were down to Orlando 0-1. We were down to Philly. You know, two one going into Game Four at their place. You know, so we've been in those moments before, but being up, being down 2-0 to Milwaukee, you know, another very good team, you know, and having to be at our place and, and winning double overtime, yeah, Kawhi and, and Kyle and the rest of them, they really were determined and resilient and, and relentless on, on getting that victory and, and moving forward. How about a guy like Fred Van Vliet? He really elevated his game in the finals. What are those blue-collar work ethics that comes from a small college basketball? Yeah, he, he did. He made some big shots, and and you can talk about big plays. And there was <laughs> there was big plays made, you know, every game and in every series and possession by possession. But but he does. He shows a lot of heart, a lot of toughness. He's got a ton of grit, and he's another you know fun guy to be around. And and it was one of those things where when he when him and Kyle were on the floor together sharing those point guard duties, you know, either one of them can bring it up the floor. Both of them are threats from the arc. But what they did best is, is get to the paint and touch that paint with some force and spread it out and hit the open man. And, and they were good. They were they were uh, uh, determined to lead us. What about the midseason acquisition of Mark Gasol? It's a big blow to lose a guy like Valanciunas, but having a veteran like Mark, how much did that mean for your playoff run? It meant a lot. And that's another reason why we continue to get better late in the season and in that two-month playoff run. Uh, Mark has been in a lot of big games in his life and, and, and seen a lot of basketball. 
boy, did he move that thing. We, we used him as a trigger man a lot, you know, meaning he would he would touch that ball at the elbow or touch that ball down there on the block, and, and he sure knew where the extra pass needed to be made. He'd be hitting cutters and, and swinging that thing, and, you know, if he was left the ball from the out, he'd knock it down as well. So just another great leader and a great team player to have around your coaching staff came into a situation following Dwayne Casey, who was fired despite winning NBA Coach of the Year. Did that put any pressure on you as a coaching staff? You know, I think there's always pressure on a, on a coaching staff. You know, every single year, you know, there's such a such a demand to win, and and that's the way we approach it every day. You know, and the, and the thing with this team is, is our team had so much experience. Meaning, like you know, Danny and Kawhi. Both had uh, NBA championships under their belt. Kyle and Serge and Mark and had a ton of playoff experience. And you know, and, and some of the younger guys like Freddie and Pascal had a little playoff experience. So as coaches, you had to be ready. We had to be ready every single day, whether it was a practice or a shoot around, and of course the games. But our guys were had such an intelligent level. If you ran a drill or if you told them a coverage you wanted to run, you better you better be able to back it up and tell them why we're doing it. So it was it was great as a coach, and it was just constant, you know, preparation, you know, for our coaching staff to keep this group ready. How did it come to be that Nick Nurse added you to his staff? Did you have a relationship with him prior to the hiring? Yeah, I did. So um, it's been oh probably. 10, 11 years ago, um, when he was named the head coach of the Iowa Energy in the D-League, um, I was his volunteer assistant. I wanted to be in pro basketball so bad, um, and I wanted to coach at the highest level. I knew the D-League was the route I had to take first, so I was his assistant at Iowa, and we were able to win a championship together. Um, and then I went on to be a head coach for four years in the D-League. But the biggest part of this is a couple of years after we won the title, he was then the head coach at RGV, and I was the head coach at Santa Cruz, and we met um, in the D-League. We played against each other in the D-League finals. And after that game, you know, they, they beat us, but after that game, he, he shook my hand at midcourt and said, uh, there's no reason why we couldn't do this at the next level. You know, he was right about that. So I've, I've had a relationship with him before, and when he got named the head coach of the Raptors, uh, I was honored uh, to become his assistant again. Talk with Nate Bjorkren, assistant coach for the NBA champion Toronto Raptors. Coach, while I've got you, i got to ask, what's Nick Nurse like away from the court? You know, he's a corn-fed Iowan like you and me, but give us something about Nick that no one would know unless they hung out with him every day. Yeah, he, he's, he's very creative, very determined. He has, you know, a couple, uh, a couple. I mean, he's a, he, he practices the piano, he plays the guitar, so he's, when he gets his mind set on something, uh, he really attacks it. So I think he's next, uh, next door in the office next to me, uh, practicing that guitar a little bit as we speak. Tell me about Drake. He was your team's international ambassador. Sometimes drew criticism. Others said they didn't mind his passion for the team. Tell me about his role when it came to the Raptors. Great role. Uh, I love shaking his hand before the game. Um, he is one of us. He's in the locker room with us after the games. and He has a lot of respect for the game of basketball. Um, he has a lot of knowledge on the game of basketball, so he knows he knows a big play when he sees it. And uh, you know, our guys obviously have a ton of respect for him. And it was great having him around with someone of a, a championship mentality like he has and the work ethic like he has. It's great to have him around our coaches and players.
I got to ask this because we talked about it on the show last week. Kawhi is such a quiet, reserved person. Is he the same off the court, away from basketball, as he is on it? You know, I don't, I don't describe him as as quiet and reserved. I mean, maybe it's because you know we're, we're we had so much, so many moments together as a team here during this during this uh, championship run. But he, you know, what he does is he speaks when he needs to. He doesn't overspeak. If he has a comment to make during the game, he makes it, and and everybody is is, is quick to listen. You know, he's got a great uh, sense of humor. Uh, he's fun to be around, and when you engage in conversations with him, um, you would you would enjoy talking to him. That game winner he had in Game Seven against Philadelphia. What was the locker room like after that? You know, it was guys were excited. But but right away, you know, it was Kyle and it was Kawhi and it was saying, "Hey man, we're only halfway there." You know, that was round two of the playoffs. We had to, to get through Milwaukee and Golden State yet, so so we did. They, they enjoyed the moment for a second. You know, it was a huge shot, great for him, great for our team. Uh, but we uh, we were quick to to get ready for the next series, and and sure enough, first thing that next morning, all the guys were in, and we were ready to. To get to practice and get to get to watching film on Milwaukee. Out of all the great players you saw during this playoff run, which did you and as a coaching staff spend the most time preparing for? Well, um, you know, every team, every team had so many weapons. Um, I, you know, the most time that we had to prepare for a team was was Golden State because once we got to playing, it seems like there was two days in between every game. You know, which was great. Good, good film sessions and good practice sessions in. So, so it, it, would, it would be Golden State just because of the amount of time um, that we had during that uh, you know final round of the playoffs. But but all the teams and, and, and all the coaches that we played against, they, they presented you know enormous challenges and and we did. We we had to work hard to uh, to win it. Well, Coach, it's hard to think that your team started this playoff run with a loss. You mentioned it earlier against Orlando. What was the mood after that game? Were you pretty confident you could bounce back? Yeah, we were confident, but that was a, that was a big one. Meaning, like we went down 0-1. The playoffs just started. I think it was a huge, it was a huge wake-up call to our team. I mean, Orlando. You, you could make an argument they were the best team coming into the playoffs. I think they were like 20 and five in their last 25 regular season games. You know, they went from being out of the playoffs to, to fighting all the way to that, that seventh seed, and, and they were on a nice run, so they came in and beat us. But it, but it did. It, it, uh, it woke our guys up. Um, there was a, a, a different level of determination that they came in with the next day, and then, and then obviously, uh, like you mentioned, we won the next four there and, and moved on to the next round. Coach, answer as much as you feel comfortable has Kawhi given the Raptors any indication what he plans to do for the coming season? You know, I, that's, I don't know any part of that. That's for the front office and, and Coach Nurse to handle. But what I will tell you is this. We get asked that question a lot, like as coaches and players and, and things. And, and, and honestly, we never thought about it. Like everyone's saying, oh, what's, what's Kawhi going to do next year? What's Mark going to do next year? What's Danny going to do next year? It, it didn't matter. You know, it was this year only. Everybody came in with one thing on their mind this year, and that was to win a championship. You know, from, from the beginning of training camp, we knew we were in that window of a group of teams that can honestly say they have a chance to win it all. And the only thing we focused on was this year. And whatever happens next year happens. You know, I'm sure our team will be different in some ways, and 
whether Kawhi, Mark, Danny, any of those, any of those guys go or stay, uh, we're going to be a tough team to beat. Nate Bjorkren, assistant coach for the NBA champion Toronto Raptors, joins us on the Sports Pen. Coach, really appreciate you taking the time and talking. All the best this season, and good luck in the draft tomorrow night. Thank you, and great talking with you. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. ESPN-UP, Tanner Hoops with you. Our guest is Michigan University men's hockey head coach, Mel Pearson. Coach, thanks so much for taking the time being on air with us. Chance to talk about Tanner Caro, Hancock native, a guy that you had the opportunity to coach up at Michigan Tech. He's made his way back to the NHL. He got the call up yesterday with the Vancouver Canucks. First and foremost, tell me a little about him as a player, what he brings to the ice. Yeah, thanks, Tanner. Thanks for having me on. But uh, obviously I was excited and uh, happy for Tanner to hear the news that he did get called back up. But uh, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, he's a tremendous hockey player. He was uh, obviously a great player, and you don't use that word lightly, a great player for us at Michigan Tech, obviously WCHA Player of the Year, leading scorer, outstanding student athlete, senior athlete. So um, he's, the, he's the complete package. Uh, you know, he's a great person, uh, tremendous work ethic, and then obviously he's a good hockey player. And uh, I remember earlier in the year when Vancouver talk to me a little bit about Tanner because they were making a trade and just wanted to know a little bit about him and uh, I couldn't say enough good things for Tanner and I told him it'd be a real asset for uh, the organization so um, I'm glad Tanner's got the, the chance to get back up and that's that's the thing you have to understand about Tanner uh, obviously he got sent down but he's the kind of guy that uh, you know wouldn't sulk or feel sorry for himself he just continued to work hard to try to get back up to the, the NHL and, uh, and and good for him 43 games with Utica this year at the AHL level. He was second on the team in goals with 16, 36 points. He was tied for the team leading assists. But what makes him such a special player is how good he was on the other end as a forward. Where does he compare to some of the two-way forwards that you've had the chance to coach before? Yeah, that's a good point. He's very versatile. And, uh, you know, I had a guy named Johnny Madden, John Madden, who played uh, for me at Michigan, who... Uh, obviously went on to win the Selkie Trophy as, you know, the best defensive forward in the NHL. And, um, you know, John was a heck of a hockey player. And, and Tanner has a lot of those same attributes that, that John did. And it, it all starts just with your your work ethic and your acceptance to play a role and play for the team. And I think that what, that's what really sticks out about Tanner is he's willing to do the dirty work, uh, maybe, you know, not get the headlines, but uh, find a way to help his team win. And if that's defensively, so be it. Uh, he can do that because of his skill set and obviously just because of his mental makeup. Now, what about the team that he's coming into, the opportunity that he has with a new-look Vancouver squad? The Sedins are out. You have the resurgence of a young group, guys like Brock Besser coming up. Is this about as opportune team as any for Tanner to get his, uh, hopefully his permanent start in the NHL? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, they've got a youth movement going on in Vancouver and, uh, we here at Michigan have Quinn Hughes, who they picked seventh overall last year. That you know, we've had a lot of conversations with them about uh, Quinn being there um, sooner to, rather than later. But uh, and they told me, you know, they're, they're making a youth movement. Uh, you know, they're willing to uh, move, you know, and retire some some older guys just to make sure that they can start this. And uh, it's a great opportunity for Tanner. And it, like I said, and, and you mentioned, it's a it's a young team there. 
with an organization that's starting fresh and building towards the future. So I think it's a, a great opportunity for Tanner. Um, you know, whether he sticks there the remainder of the year or not, I think it's great that he's getting called up and they get a, a good look at him. And, and they're right in the hunt for the playoffs, too, which, uh, you know, Travis Green, their coach, has done a tremendous job there with uh, all the young players he has on the team. Now, when you had Tanner at Michigan Tech, when did you start noticing that this guy has the skill set that can really translate to the NHL? That, you know, it, you, you could tell he could skate, and he worked, and a good team player. You know, you just weren't sure about the offensive uh, part of, you know, of his game, because he'd never, I guess maybe in high school he had been a big-time scorer, but junior hockey, he wasn't that big a scorer in the USHL, but... That came along. He developed that part of his game and obviously went on to lead our, our league in scoring. And uh, I would say probably in sophomore year, you got, you got a feel. And I've coached over 100 guys that have played in the National Hockey League. So I've been around a lot of them. And, and I think during that year, you could see the, you know some of the things he could do. And then as you got to know him and know his mental makeup and his mental toughness and his, his desire and his will and his want to be you know, very good hockey player, then you knew you had a chance. You know, a lot of times you can see the, the, the physical skill. It's just that, that mental toughness and that makeup that uh, can make a difference between uh, making that jump or not. Well, Coach, you talked about this is nothing new for you, sending guys on to the NHL, but how special is it every time you see one of your alum make it to the big stage? Well, it's awesome. and It's, it's, it's great, and I feel so happy for Tanner and, um, you know, his family and, and just the opportunity that he's going to get. And uh, I know in the Copper Country, and especially Hancock, Houghton area, that uh, you know, they're so proud of him. And, uh, and he, he does it the right way. If, if you know Tanner, he's, an, he's a wonderful person. He's just a tremendous young man. And, and you always like to see uh, good things happen to good people. And uh, I, I'm just so happy for him, like I said, and his family and the community. And he's, he's a great role model for a lot of young people and a lot of people in that area. You still keep contact with a lot of the guys you send on to the next level? Oh yeah, 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 I do. It's it's, it's fun to uh, uh, to bump into them or to you know chat with them or when they get traded, just to send them a, a text to say hey, keep going and whatnot. So and I've been able to stay in touch with Tanner, and uh, I know when he got traded to Vancouver from Chicago, I, I reached out to him and uh, let him know that I had talked to Vancouver and. There's a reason they traded for him, and just to go down if he was down and work hard, and then just ready to get, you know, just get ready for that next opportunity. Now, looking at your season this year, I mean, you guys have been pretty upset-minded throughout. Went to Notre Dame and knocked them off on New Year's, coming off an upset win against Ohio State. But tell me a little about some ways that you want to see your team improve here coming off the bye week. Yeah, we have to be a lot more consistent, Tanner. You're right. We we. We seem to be playing to our competition right now. When we have big games, we get up for them, and maybe we overlook some of the other opponents we're playing. And uh, That's not a good uh, recipe to, to have long-term success. So uh, We have to play a lot better, uh, excuse me, a lot more consistent play uh, you know, against anyone we play because anyone can beat us, and I think there's so much parity in college hockey that anybody can beat you, and, and you can beat anybody on a given night. But we have to find that consistency, and... I think we turned the corner a little bit here, start of the new year. I like where our team is headed in the direction of the players and, and how they're working on the ice. So uh, we have a chance. And the Big Ten right now is so tight from you know, really first place to last place. Everybody's bunched in there within, I think, 10 points. So it's going to be uh, quite a finish in the Big Ten. And 
uh, we have a chance. We just have to play uh, consistent on a nightly, nightly basis. Talk with Mel Peterson, head hockey coach at the University of Michigan. Coach, how are you spending the bye week as you get set for a really high-powered offense that Penn State will throw at you? Yeah, it's it's uh, we we call it a, a learning week and an improvement week, uh, and we've worked hard. I give our, our guys a lot of credit because uh, it, it can be hard when you don't have games for a while just to keep that intensity in practice. And uh, we we've just taken uh, the opportunity this week to work on our special teams, spend more time. You don't feel as rushed, or you're not worried about you know the guys maybe getting as tired. So we spent more time on the ice, uh, working on some systems, and then. Some individual things. We've broken it down, and certain individuals have areas they need to work on, so we've taken more time with that. Uh, it's been a good week so far, and we've got a couple days left, and we're going to try to create some game-like situations uh, today and tomorrow. Um, just make sure we stay sharp for Penn State, because you're right, they're a heck of a hockey team. Now, when you look around the Big Tens, anything surprise you? Anything jump out to you? Or are things starting to play out the way maybe you thought they would? Well, I'm a little surprised by Notre Dame. You know, they're one game under 500 in the league, but they've lost three in a row here, and then the injury bug has hit them. Um, other than that, I think everything has played out. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of talent. Uh, you know, there's, there's great coaches in the league, so it's 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 a battle every night, and um, I, I think you'll see more of that for sure in our league going forward. And uh, it's a great league. Um, you know, great schools, a lot of great players. Uh, so it's a lot of fun, but it's a, it's a challenge, too. Mel, thanks so much for taking the time, as always. Maybe we'll have you on again here soon, but all the best the rest of this way. Absolutely, Tanner, and I appreciate you uh, highlighting a, a former uh, UP player that's uh, you know getting a good opportunity here. So thank you very much. Once again, that was Mel Pearson, head hockey coach at the University of Michigan. I'm Tanner Hoops, and that will complete our show. I hope you enjoyed our best of interviews. Had some fun guests here on the Sports Pen over the course of 2019. Got a lot more coming up. Hope to have you with us here on ESPN-UP. Regular show back tomorrow, giving you the latest news, information, and headlines. Signing off until then, my name's Tanner Hoops. Join us at 4 Eastern, 3 Central on Tuesday for the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP.